0: Getting a quick head count here. I think we uh, this is going to go more um, in terms of a Bible study. I think at this point than a uh, than a sermon. So we're gonna. It, it's good we're introducing the Book of Colossians today, um, and so it probably lends itself to being more of a teaching instead of a preaching. Anyway, so uh, we're let's say we're studying the Book of Colossians together today. Um, you can turn to um, Colossians, although. It's going to be, uh, I'm going to give a lot of information prior to us actually reading anything in Colossians. I want to give us some background about the book of Colossians so that we understand what we're reading a little bit. Um, And uh, it's been a while since we've done a book study as a church. We've been doing topical series uh, for about six months now. Um, And so I'm really, I was telling Jen just how good it felt to do a, uh, a book study again because this week as I was studying, just to be able to get the commentaries out and get a passage of Scripture and to dig into it, um, it felt really, really good because we've been doing a lot of vision. We've been talking about how to hear the voice of the Lord. We've been doing kind of discipleship series about how to, how uh, practical things in walking with the Lord. It's all been coming out of the Scripture, of course, but um, it's great to be back in a book. And the, you see the basic, the basic message of... Uh, Of Colossians, we have the the title is only all and nothing but Jesus. That's kind of that's the title of the series, only all and nothing but Jesus. Um, And uh, Shelby did all this here. That was pretty cool. There's all this, all the words and everything, but it's all wrapped up in Jesus. So um, as we get started, I'm gonna I'm gonna have us say a word of prayer, and then we'll pray again when we actually read the text. But let's pray, God. We thank you for uh, the new testament we thank you for the old testament we thank you for the canon we thank you for um father all the voices that have contributed to the holy scriptures we thank you that all of them are guided and led uh, by the uh, intricate sovereignty and uh, inspiration of your holy spirit we thank you that um, they don't speak any less to us now than they spoke to the colossian church back then you know um that sometimes we actually find things in there that the Colossians would have never found because your spirit um, is is using the word of God, which is alive and active. And uh, we thank you that these aren't um, just ancient words. They are ancient words, but they're also present words. And that in your eternity, you are speaking to our hearts and to our minds, and you wash us with the water of the word right now. So help us to understand in the next few weeks here uh, this book of uh, Colossians, this letter. Uh, in a way that uh, really impacts and shapes us, because we know that we need the the different parts of the Scriptures to keep shaping who we are and, and laying foundation. Um, so, God, uh, correct us, instruct us, rebuke us, uh, exhort us, and wash us through Your Word. And um, and we look forward to that. We um, uh, want to join David in saying, "We, uh, you know, Your rod and Your staff, they comfort us." And uh, we yearn for your principles, even your rebuke. We, we yearn for your righteous judgments. We want you as a God to judge us, not in the sense of condemning us or hurting us, but we want you to look at our lives and see what doesn't work well and let us know so that we can be fixed. You know, um, we need uh, a friend and a guide and a father who um, is intentional uh, in, in, in uh, showing us where we get off base. And. We're not strong enough to do that on our own, and even as a community, we still need you to be the breath that is breathing the words to one another, so we ask that you would do that through this series, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, obviously, the book of Colossians was written to uh, the church in Colossae, and Colossae was a town that was, it was about 100 miles east of Colossae. Ephesus, the, and the, the book, uh, the letter written to the church in Ephesus and the letter written to the church in Colossae were written around the same time. Uh, there was a, a river, it's in modern-day Turkey, the Lycus River, and Colossae is right off the coast of that Lycus River, and it was interior in the Roman Empire. It wasn't a port town, but it was near the river, kind of like Pottstown or something. We're, we're on the river, but we're in interior, and that's the way uh, this town was. At one point, it had been a thriving metropolis in the Persian Empire and in the Greek Empire. It was kind of a boom in town because the roads were right along the rivers. And so it was on the way. It wasn't necessarily just a destination in and of itself, but it was big because it was on the way to a bunch of other things. Um, But things changed because the Romans were very well known for making new roads. And when they made new roads, it changed everything. Anybody ever see the Disney movie Cars? Ever see that, the, uh, the cartoon movie? And there's this little town called Radiator Springs that used to be where it was all happening on Route 66. But then the freeway came in and it bypassed them and all of a sudden there was not much left of the town. That was Colosh, Colossi. Um That's kind of what happened there is that it had been, you know, a town that everyone stopped in and there was a thriving metropolis. But then once the new roads were built, it changed everything for them. And, of course, a lot of the industry then left and all of that. There's a, kind of some similarities with Pottstown there, isn't there? High Street used to be on the way to a whole bunch of other things because, you know, High Street and Ridge Pike and all of that. And then there was 724 and then there's 422. And now you can stop at just about any exit on 422 and get it off and get to Wawa and get everything you need and get right back on the highway, you know. And um, and so uh, High Street is kind of left behind, and even the Coventry Mall is uh, a little bit out of the way now compared to what it used to be. Um, you know, if you blow right past on 422 without even seeing the Coventry Mall, um, except for that big Dick Sporting Goods sign out there that you can still see. Um, but in, but you, we know uh, very much what it's like to see towns uh, in, in Pennsylvania that are interior, that are along a river, that used to be right along the main road, but then the main road changed, and what were booming steel towns and full of factories and all, has it's changed. And and yet, we're still in America, you know? And yet, Colossi was still in Rome. I mean, it was still a uh, part of the Roman Empire. And so, uh, even though there, it, it, it's a kind of an odd thing to be in the superpower of the day, but be in a repressed economy within that. And uh, so there's some real similarities between the town that's right across the river here from us and the town of of Colossae. Now, uh, in the same way, it was also not that far from some towns that were really booming. So Ephesus was a booming town. I mean, there was still a lot going on in Ephesus, and Paul set up shop in Ephesus for a long time. He was in, he had been in Ephesus for about two to three years um, in his third missionary journey um, and just hung out there for a long period of time, and it's assumed that this church in Colossae probably got kicked off during that, his stay in, in Colossae. We're not sure. We don't actually have any record of Paul visiting Colossae. We don't know if he went there himself or if one of his guys, we know that Epaphras was there. Epaphras is the one who brings him news. But we don't know that Paul established this church himself. As a matter of fact, we don't even know if, somebody, if he had any personal relationship with the people from Colossae at all. Um, but we do know he's, he's concerned about them, and he cares for them. And kind of the way that things worked at that time with the church, it was really interesting because, uh, th- again, there's some real similarities to the way things are happening now. It would, it would be that they, um, Paul or um, one of the apostles would go to a, a place and establish kind of a home base Antioch was a big home base, you know, and Ephesus became a home base, Corinth kind of became a home base, and there was these different home bases, and then what would happen is there's these little towns that were out around those areas that would be kind of mission points from that base, and there was sort of a regional picture of a church, and you know, it wasn't too long ago in our history in America where you had circuit-riding preachers, who would have a kind of jurisdiction or whatever over a few different, they'd have responsibility at a few different churches, and they'd travel around and preach at those different churches. And that's kind of the way it would happen. Like So in the Ephesus ring, you'd come out from Ephesus and, and preach and teach at these different churches. Each church had a little bit of a local governing body, but then a lot of the ministry that would happen would happen from people who were coming from, uh, from the surrounding churches as well. They shared leadership. Now, uh, right now, uh, a big thing in the church that's happening is this thing called multi-site church you know about this this is when a church kind of establishes instead of going and planting a new autonomous church what they'll do is um uh morning star you know morning star church is up in bechtelsville and right now they have a site in Pottstown on high street and uh steve Defrain, who preaches up at morning star They'll either simulcast him, so the people who are, they're having a worship service on High Street in Pottstown, and then they look up on the screen, and they see Steve preaching, you know, or they'll send a videotape or a a DVD of him preaching and come over. And that's a really um, kind of a popular trend right now in the church is planning uh, different sites around that are all part of one local community. Uh, another trend that's happening right now is what we're trying to do with Netzer, where we take existing churches and bring uh, communication and connections between them. But I think at this point in the church, when the, first, when the church was first being birthed, there was no fracture in the church. All there was was what was being established, and they were all connected to each other. And there were these leaders who were regional who were kind of helping them all, and then there was the local leaders and the way they all interacted. Colossi was right, it was about 10 miles from Laodicea. Um, so it was very close to Laodicea, which is another one of those little towns in that area that you hear about. And you hear about it in the book of Colossians. Paul refers to Laodicea kind of as like, it'd be like Coventry and Parkerford, Like it's right over there, you know. And uh, and uh, there was a couple other towns that were like that as well that Paul refers to. Uh, Laodicea we hear of, of course, also in the book of Revelation. Um, and so... It, that's kind of the the context of the, this church in Colossae. And then Paul, when he writes the letter, he's writing it from prison. Um, we know that he's writing it from prison. And when he writes this letter, we're, we're pretty sure it's the same time that he's writing um, the letter to the uh, Ephesians. And there's a lot of similarities. We'll look in a few minutes at the similarities and differences between those two letters. But you can see Paul's view of these two churches and how they strategically interplay in the kingdom of God is very different, based on how he engages them in the book. What does he feel the need to talk to? Uh, uh, I keep wanting to say Ephrata, because I, I, I every time I say Ephesians, I want to say Ephrata, but it's Ephesus. Um, that's because I used to be at uh, Ephrata. Anyway, um, Ephesus. So he wants to speak to uh, to Ephesus in a certain way, because of how he sees them playing into the kingdom of God. I think in Paul's mind, these churches were in the same way that like a pastor looks at different people and sees the way that they interplay in a church. Paul sees the kingdom of God and sees the way that different churches play into the kingdom of God and says, this church's job, they kind of do this, and this church, they do that, and they see how they fit together. And, You know, so I I can look across the room and see musicians and see prayer warriors and we can see teachers and we can see the way that people uh, interface. And I think Paul's doing that. And you see these letters that he's writing all at the same time from prison. You get a picture into Paul's mind as he's kind of looking across the whole scene and seeing how these churches play together. And he writes the letters accordingly. So um, Paul's in prison and there's this great lesson for us. And I'm sure you, you probably know this, but there's this spectacular lesson for us in the fact that Paul wrote these letters from prison. What do you think, an, what's a lesson for us to learn about that? About Paul writing these letters from prison? Okay, so, yeah, I mean, Paul says that he's learned the secret to being content in all situations. He's consistently saying, find joy in all circumstances. Yeah, and sometimes in ways that we don't even recognize, right? So, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's awesome about Paul is he doesn't—he doesn't quit or give up. He doesn't seem to get discouraged. He does seem to get cold. He keeps telling people to bring him blankets and stuff. Um, but, uh, but I, I think what's amazing is Paul doesn't get to that spot where he's like, "Oh man, why in the world, God, would you have me in this situation right now?" Like, I'm an entrepreneur. I know the scriptures. You built all this stuff into my head. You know I can be really effective. There's people out there who are lost, who are dying. Why would you have me stuck in prison? I could be out there doing so much more. We could plant more churches, and I'm wasting this time in prison. Paul doesn't actually say that. I, I don't know if he actually struggled with that in his head or not, but the scriptures don't show him feeling that. Instead, they show him saying, this is where God has me. And I'm going to do the best I can to build the kingdom of God with what I have right now. Forgetting what is behind, looking forward to what is ahead, engaging in the situation I have. And Paul makes the best of the situation. The most amazing thing about that is is I don't know which is more effective. The fact that Paul was the biggest kingdom builder of the first century outside of Jesus. Out of all the apostles and everything, clearly Paul um, was the most, uh, uh, um, we can see the most fruit from Paul's actual ministry more than any other apostle. Um, but I don't know if that's what, I, I doubt that's the most effective part of Paul's life. The, the writing of the New Testament um, and the letters of the New Testament is probably even more effective than what he established in his day and age. Because over the years, over and over and over and over again throughout the generations, we have all gleaned so much from Paul's letters. And, um, and uh, among most of modern day Christianity, Paul is probably the favorite writer. You know, uh, David and Paul are probably the ones who people lean into the most. And um, it, so that all happened because instead of getting discouraged in the moment, he engaged the moment. And I don't know about you, but for me, I, I, it can, it's very easy to think about what could be as opposed to what is and to get frustrated about what could be or what should be instead of engaging the moment. And when we engage the moment when things are not ideal, sometimes that's when the absolute best stuff happens. You know, I, I had no idea why God had Jen and I in Ephrata. I almost said Ephesus that time. When he had us in Ephrata for five years, and I didn't know why. I knew we were supposed to be back in this area. Um, and I had no idea what God had us doing there. And we kind of felt like we were in a holding pattern a little bit. And yet, we God clearly put it on our hearts to say, forget about Pottstown. Forget about the past. Forget about anything else. Just be here. Just be here. You know, be present and and build the kingdom of God and, and find me and love on me and learn from me in the moment. And we got mentored, and our kids were born into a really cool environment, and we learned a ton about church that we hadn't known before. And we knew how to, like, go out and do street ministry and we knew how to do all this, but we learned about like an actual, what it means to function in a church. And there's so much that we learned in that time. And much of the material that I learned about the scripture, I learned in that period of time. And looking back, I'm like, man, I don't know where we would be if we hadn't had that time. And we've all had those moments. So anyway, um, that's uh, that's Paul in prison. So we talked about the church at Colossae and what, what's going on with Paul. And again, I think it's important just to see Paul's, picture and when he's what's hit what's on his heart is to encourage these churches and to and support the 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 leaders you see him writing to to Timothy and Titus and and situations like that but then the all, all these local churches and just to encourage him in his heart to say every church is super important and establishing every piece of doctrine that could protect us from being led astray is really important and Paul's uh, taking great care to make sure that that he's protecting and caring for and establishing the connections here in building, and that's just an awesome thing to watch that happening from some guy in prison. You know, every now and then I hear about um, some uh, a mob boss who's stuck in prison because he got busted, and they still wonder if there's a connection where he's kind of leading things from prison. You know, exactly the opposite of that is Paul still figuring out a way to build the kingdom of God while stuck in prison. You know, for a long time, Osama bin Laden, he said, was just in complete, total hiding, and yet still had the authority to help lead um, his terrorist these terrorist cells because they found ways to, uh, and God can do this in the in the kingdom of God far better than the kingdom of darkness can do that. Where somebody in a prayer room praying and thinking about people and studying the scriptures, and and you know has the ability to do great things. So anyway, uh, the, that's the Church of Colossian Paul, and um, th- now when it comes to the similarities as he's writing. This uh, to uh, the book, uh, or as he's writing the letter to both um, Ephesus and to Colossians, there's a few things that are really in common about you see that are shared. One is that Tychicus is the courier, so he's the guy who's taken the letters around, and uh, and he takes them not first to uh, these churches; they go elsewhere first. And Paul, like, is like, "Hey, on your way, make sure everyone else sees these letters," which gives you an indication that Paul knows that these letters, even though they're to this church in particular, that the stuff that's held in them is important for everyone else to hear. So uh, that's like, I might write uh, a sermon that's um, with Parker Ford in mind, but then I might go and speak at another church and take that same sermon and say, hey, this would be really helpful here too. And that's kind of the way Paul saw this because the truth is the truth. We apply it a little bit different based on you know, anyone's circumstance. But... Um, the, the two things that uh, these letters really have in common, uh, as Paul's writing them, one is they're both about the centrality of Jesus. Both of them, the entire book, is just about it's about Jesus. The difference we'll, we'll talk about the difference of, of what that is, but, uh, um, in, a, in just a minute. But the other things that they have in common, there's these themes that you see between these two books, and it's cool to see the themes. They both talk about uh, the necessary wisdom and knowledge. Paul's praying for them to have wisdom and knowledge in both of those books so that they can fully understand God. And he talks about the mystery of the gospel being revealed in both of those letters. The mystery. If you're in the Spiritual Gifts Sunday School class, we've been talking a lot about the mystery of the gospel in the Spiritual Gifts Sunday School class and how God puts on display something very, very special in the church that hadn't been revealed before that. Um, and then uh, he also, in both those books, talks about the principalities and the powers that assail us, that seek to distract us. And um, so there's these common themes that you see Paul, like as he's, in the, as he's in the prison, he's sitting there thinking, all right, what is the main message? I need, I, everyone needs more wisdom and knowledge of God so that they can be a part of revealing the mystery of the gospel and embody Christ. But then there's these other figures in the spiritual realm that are warring against that. That's the theme. And then he says, how do I apply that to Colossae? And how do I apply that to Ephesus? And the difference here in how he applies those things is largely this, that with the church in Ephesus, he's talking about Christ as the head of the church. And he gives an outline of the whole church and how it's supposed to work and what the master, God's master plan is through Christ in the church. And uh, on Tuesday night, we're going to be kicking off journey groups. One of those journey groups, we're talking about the church. Of course, the primary texts that we're going to be looking at are Acts, the story of the church, and Ephesus, the outline, uh, Ephesians, the outline of the church. Because, and the reason is because since he saw uh, Ephesus as such a strategic regional church, Paul, he saw them as such a, a regionally-based church that it was important for everyone who was a part of that church to understand what the intent was. Like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is why leaders are coming in and out of here, and they're going out here and going over here. This is why all of that. Uh, we're, God's painting a picture of the church, and this is what's going on. This is what it looks like, and he's explaining to them. When it comes to uh, Colossians, Colossi, he doesn't see them as being a regionally focused church or anything like that. What he sees them as is a very vulnerable people who are being assailed by heresy. Um, and who are being tempted to be led astray. And so he takes his focus on Jesus is not about who Jesus is in the church. He says, who is Jesus to you? And he's talking to the individual and the theology in each person's mind. And he's like, if you're not careful your life will not be what it's supposed to be because you will be led astray from being dependent on Jesus. And let me show you how you get distracted here. And that's how he focuses things with the book of Colossians. And again, you can see, since uh, uh, Ephesus doesn't seem to be just the destination unto itself, but the kingdom of God is flowing through Ephesus to other places, he needs the average person in the church to understand the breadth of God's plan for the kingdom. In, the, in With Colossae, he's saying, I just need you guys to hold on to the gospel. And he's like pounding them with the basics of the gospel and saying, you're going to get off track. And um, so uh, the reason that he writes specifically to Colossae about this is because this guy Epaphras, his buddy, and you know Paul is always sending people back and forth all over the place. And, um, but he, he has his buddy Epaphras. He comes back to Paul and he says, there's a problem in, in Colossae right now. There's these people who are teaching such and such. And Paul's like, oh, <laughs> that's not okay. Because he knows what happens when we start to think wrong, then we start to live wrong. And uh, we actually do what we think. Um, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a lie out there that we, we think we can actually believe this, but do this. And and we, we actually can't. When I start sinning and living in a lifestyle of sin, I may think that I believe this. But it's not actually true. I might know information about God, but I don't actually believe that information if I'm living this way. The way the, the way faith works is faith is about who I'm trusting. And if I'm trusting God and if I'm trusting the truth that He's speaking, then I will inevitably live in a way that reveals that. And if I say that I believe. But my f- the fruit of my life doesn't reveal that. Then it's only that it's it's verbiage, and and, and I can speak that, but I, I don't actually believe that. I don't actually trust it, and that's what happens. So Paul's checking them on what they actually believe and showing them where they where they get off base, um, and how they're going to be led astray. Now this the heresy, and we're we're about to read the text um, here because we don't you know I, that's everything in this in this time is really to kind of set the stage for this. Book, but um. The, this heresy that was assailing them is a really confusing one because it doesn't appear that it fits perfectly with um, any of the specific heresies of the day. So, anybody know what the two big heresies were in the New Testament church? Gnosticism was one of them. And what's Gnosticism? Yeah, yeah, secret knowledge, right? So, yeah, it's all secret knowledge, and it's spiritual is better than physical. Um, Everything was based on the theology that everything spiritual is good, everything physical is bad, and the more spiritual experience or knowledge you have, the more you're ascending, and there's this secret knowledge that can only be spiritually gained. It's not like logical, it's not, and it's certainly physical, and people responded in two different ways. They either kind of like beat the body Uh, because the body was bad and deprived the body, or they were completely immoral with the body. Let the body go do what it wants. It doesn't really matter. All that matters is what I know on a spiritual level. That was one of the big heresies. And what's the other one? Asceticism, yeah, which is connected to something that came from the Jewish faith. We call them the Judaizers. The Judaizers. And what, what did the Judaizers basically do? What did they say? you still had to keep certain parts of the law at least. And so that's why uh, when uh, Paul's always talking about circumcision, whether you need to be circumcised or not, that whole thing, that was about whether the covenant, the circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, and did we still need to engage in the old covenant? Meet sacrificed idols, you know, all these topics had to do with defending against that. So in our day and age, we would call the Juda- Judaizers legalists. Okay, that's just like legalism. It's like this idea of like you still have this kind of religious spirit, this law. You got to still work at it. Yeah, we're saved by grace, but you got to kind of do this, this, or this, or it's not real. As opposed to grace and Jesus being the one that's producing fruit, I still have to work to produce fruit that matches this, so I kind of have to fake it, you know? Um, And then Gnosticism would would really be probably in ways we would call that... uh, Possibly we call it New Age. Um, there's a, but what happens right now in our world and what was happening in Colossae is there's something that uh, is called syncretism. And what's syncretism? Anybody know what that is? Exactly. So it's kind of a buffet of spirituality. This is the religion of Oprah. You know, uh, and, and this would truly be kind of a new age, postmodern way of thinking about faith is that each person kind of decides what portion of, the, of faith they like and they kind of mix and match that to say, this is what I think is true and this is what makes sense to me as if any one of us has the ability to see perfectly. But that's the whole deception in our day is you don't have to see perfectly because no one actually thinks that you can, anyone can see perfectly. And so the whole point is no one can know the truth. So you might as well just do what works for you or kind of figure out the best you can. And that's not actually true. That's not, we we shouldn't have more faith in humans to be able to figure out truth. We should have more faith in God to be able to reveal himself clearly. And God is strong enough to reveal the truth and establish that to a bunch of broken humans. Um, and when we believe that, we believe that there is actually a solid truth that we can hang on to. Um, in, in Colossae, this is what was happening. There was a weird mix. Everything was still Christian. People were, the church was Christian. And yet they're pulling in some of this Gnostic thought and they're pulling in some of this Juda, Judaizer thought and they have this kind of weird mix. And the whole point of Paul's whole book to them, is to teach them how to stay focused on the one thing that matters and one thing alone, which is Jesus. He's like, this isn't just a doctrine of Jesus. This isn't a theology of Jesus. This isn't the practice of Jesus. This isn't uh, the the woo-woo experience of Jesus. What this is, is Jesus is a person. He is God, and we need to lean on him. And that's what this is, a relationship, a dependence on Jesus. And so the whole book really focuses on that. The whole letter focuses on that. All right. With that said, we're gonna, in our last couple minutes here, we're going to read the first uh, few verses and um, just make a few points on them. Um, in, in the next couple weeks is when we'll really dig into it. Any questions about that or thoughts about the introduction to? Well, I see. Yeah. I feel like you got a background, a picture of it. All right. So uh, chapter 1. And um, we'll go down to verse 14. I'm not going to have you stand. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we'll just walk down. I'll, st- I'll stop and make comments. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. This word apostle is twofold there. I mean, Paul's like a legitimate apostle, which means like he's, he's kind of, he even says, I've kind of been grafted into the twelve but he says like a stepbrother or something, (laughs) almost like an illegitimate. He's like, I don't know how this happened, but I'm like one of the 12, and it's weird, and we see that about Paul. There's other people who are called apostles who are not part of the 12, like Apollos and other people like that, but they're also not considered quite the same as the rest of the 12. Paul is like goes both ways. He's after the 12, but he's kind of part of the 12 too, and he's like capital A apostle writing the letters and and Jesus appeared to him. But then he's also the small a, the one who's kind of functions in the role of just connecting churches and helping support them. Um, By the will of God and Timothy, our brother and uh, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Notice who he's actually writing to. He's writing to the faithful brothers. He's not writing to those who have already been led astray. He's writing primarily to those who are holding strong because he's trying to protect them from being led astray. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. I'm going to stop there for a second. Three things that I want to point out. First of all, I love that he's thanking God for the fact that they're connected. He doesn't say, good job, way to stay connected. He's like, we thank God for the fact that you're remaining faithful. It's God who's keeping you here. There's no arrogance in this. All of us are held in his arms by his grace. Another thing is he says, we're stoked about your faith. Stoked was the word he used, I think. We're, we're, um, we, we are grateful for your faith and for the love you have for the saints Because the hope laid up in heaven. Notice those three? Faith, hope, and love that are all tied in there. You know, that's kind of a theme for him. Um, And what he's saying is, notice what they have faith in. What do they have faith in? In Christ Jesus. They don't have faith. It's not you believe the right doctrine. It's that you trust the right person. Okay? So you're trusting Jesus, and we thank him because he's the one who's holding you close. This is, this is relational. But as you trust him, it's revealed because you have this love. So, uh, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, that's the fruit, because how to, So, in other words, you have faith in Jesus. It's revealed through the fact that you're loving because you have hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And what he's saying is, when you trust Jesus then his words provide hope, and that hope allows you to love. So there's faith that gives hope and hope that gives love. The fruit is love. In order to be able to love, we have to have hope because hope requires mass- or, uh, love requires massive sacrifice. And if I'm going to sacrifice, I have to have hope that it's going to be okay. You know? So I have to have something to hope for, and I have that hope because faith is the assurance of those things that we hope for. Right? And so I tr- I'm trusting God saying it's going to be okay so now I can lay down my life for someone else because I have the hope of God taking care of me. So I'm trusting Jesus, trusting his word, therefore I have hope which allows me to actually love. And, and that question should come back to us then and should say where is it that our faith in Jesus is providing a level of hope that is allowing us to love? And that's a real practical applicational point for us. We should, there should be a place where it is a huge sacrifice for us to love, a huge risk for us to love, but we're able to do it because of the hope, because we trust what this says. And so there are sacrifices in our life that are completely because we trust in what he says as the hope. And we can ask ourselves some real practical questions about that. So uh, in other words, um, if, if I don't have just 70 years, but if I have all of eternity, how does that change the way I use my time? Because I know for me, I can get really stressed about not having enough time to get stuff done. And then I, sometimes I don't make good decisions about what to do because I'm too stressed about not having enough time. But if I know that I have all of eternity, it's, it's the same thing with finances, right? I, I may have a difficult time doing what God wants me to do with finances if I think that I'm really limited in finances, but if I believe that God will provide for my needs according to his riches and glory, then it might change the way I use my finances because I actually take him at his word and trust him. And so I say, oh, this is what we have, not this. So therefore that changes. I have hope that he will provide for me. And if he cares for the sparrow, he'll provide for me so I can actually trust him and do the loving thing in this moment with my finances because I have the hope that he will take care of me, you know? And so that's the, the way that works. And now he talks about how the gospel does this all over the place. He says, uh, in verse 6, he says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our brother, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Again, the, the, the love happens because of the fruit of the Spirit, and that's because of the grace of the gospel. Anytime that we assume that love is based on our efforts as opposed to based on the Holy Spirit uh, being birthed in us, we've kind of missed it, right? And so it's grace of the gospel that produces love. So if I want to love more, I have to figure out how to lean into the gospel more, and that frees me to love. If I try to effort love on my own, I'll always fall short. One of the things that's really cool in here is it says the gospel is bearing fruit. And so it's increasing and growing. It makes the gospel an organic, living, reproducing thing. What is the, um, Isaiah 55 says, my word will not return void, but will accomplish what it's set out to, uh, to accomplish. Which is that he plants the seed of the word of God and if someone holds on to that seed and it goes, falls into a soft soil of a human heart, now I'm actually believing this and I'm meditating on it. What, what this passage is telling us is any time that someone truly receives the gospel, it will always produce fruit. If we are not producing fruit, it's because we're not fully believing gospel. And that's the whole thing. It's like that. that what he's saying is this is a life-giving, reproductive organism, this word of God, this gospel. When we understand the grace of God, when we understand that God of the universe loves me this much, to the extent that I actually can embody that and believe that and receive that and meditate on that and trust in that, it will transform my life. It will change me completely to the extent that I believe it. To the extent that I trust God about what he's saying, it will change everything. Okay, and uh, verse 9, And so, because of all that, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled, so he's saying, like, even more, with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's this, this is very similar to a prayer in uh, Ephesians. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, this is what Paul's saying, if that's a fruit-bearing gospel, you need to know more, and your minds need to understand and open up to more and more of understanding God so that more fruit can be produced. So someone can have an understanding of the gospel on this level, and it will change this much of their life. You know? God is amazing, but to the extent that we trust him, there is a sowing and reaping principle here, and that's to the extent that we trust God, is to the extent that 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 portion of my life then will bear the fruit of the gospel. But if over here I'm shutting this part of the this door in my life, and saying the gospel is here in my life, and I trust him for eternity in heaven, so I'm not afraid of death anymore. Well, that's good. We're not afraid of death, but I might still be afraid of this relationship with this person because I don't think that the gospel's strong enough to keep me from, from having to defend myself in this place where I'm easily hurt with this person, and that's why we're told that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The salvation's happened, But working that out is believing it not just here, but believing it in this part of my life and believing it in this part of my life and believing it in this part of my life. And so we say you need more wisdom and knowledge and it needs to increase so that in every good work uh, you may be strengthened uh, with all power and the power is in the gospel. We know that we're not ashamed of the... The power of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. So it's the truth of the gospel that transforms. If I need more power in my life, I need to believe more in the gospel. I need to understand it more and embody it more. So this is verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Here, this word, glorious might, every commentator I read said that's translated wrong. Which is hilarious because almost every translation translates it that way. And the commentators are the guys who do the translation. So I don't know what's going on. But they all they were all saying um, it, what what that should or, or would most accurately say is may you be strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory. So instead of his glorious might, it sh- the focus isn't on his might. The might is a descriptor of his glory. So this is about, this isn't saying... Uh, may you be strengthened with the power of his might, it's saying may you be strengthened with the power of his glory. The difference is this. Instead of saying you're a powerful God, make this happen, what it's saying is the more I understand the nature and the glory of God, the more I, it's mighty to transform my life. So the more I see God, the more I'm transformed. That reminds us of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 3. As we behold the glory of God, we are transformed with ever-increasing glory into his likeness. Um, So um, giving thanks to, oh, and here's the point. All that power is to give us endurance and to give us patience and joy. And the whole point is he's like, you know it's going to get tough. And even for you guys now, it's getting tough. But you can endure, you can still maintain that ability to be faithful servants of Jesus. If you will hold on to the gospel, then no matter what the circumstances are, you can still trudge through it and you can trudge through it with joy. You can, and he's like writing it from prison. You know, so Paul, it's not like Paul's not practicing what he's preaching. You know, he's writing it from prison. And he's saying, the more you know Jesus, the more no matter what comes against you, you can endure it with joy. And the more you have to wait on what it is that you see God wants to do, you can have patience and you can wait for it with joy because you know the immensity of God's glory and you're experiencing the grace and his love for you that's not based on anything you've done and you can be present with him in that moment knowing that he's in control and in that you will remain faithful and you will be established in joy. Okay, so that's it. We're going to close it up. I'm just going to read the last part of it here. So giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. That's past tense, right? And it's not just that That's a pity where he gives us inheritance. It's that he qualified us. That's about who we are. He's made us worthy of it, which is awesome. If if we meditate on that, it's not just I'm giving you this. It's that I'm making you worthy of it. Verse 13, he has delivered us, that's past tense again, from the domain of darkness. That means anytime that I feel like Satan's got a grip in my life in some area, that is a lie. I don't belong to Satan anymore. I belong to Jesus. And I just need to say... You, I don't belong to you, and I'm tra- and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, which means I belong to Jesus now, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. Oh, man, what a great text. And words is just warming up, because next week that text is spectacular. So we thank you for, for this book, and we thank you for what it speaks, God. And we ask that the words that it has spoken to us today would be like what Paul says, a seed bearing fruit that will not return void, that will produce the fruit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.